Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Bell, Chief Executive Officer of Witten Investment Trust. So Andrew is going to be discussing whether the widening of discounts for private equity investment trusts has been overdone, which in turn may create some potential bargain opportunities for investors. So over the past 18 months or so, Discounts have widened across the private equity investment trust sector in response to higher interest rates. This has caused a repricing of risk assets. So some investors are skeptical that the valuations for unlisted companies have not fallen enough compared to some of the the declines we've seen in public markets for similar growth-focused companies. And the predicament that retail investors face is that the value of the underlying investments So the net asset values or NAVs, they're reported quarterly by private equity investment trusts. This results in a timing lag on when the valuations are reported. So therefore, those NAVs potentially do not reflect the reality of what those assets could be sold for today. So what are your thoughts, Andrew? Are the valuation concerns for unlisted companies justified or are they overstated? I think in general, they're they're overstated. But I draw a difference between the mainstream private equity trusts that invest in profitable companies and they try and maybe build a platform, do acquisitions, and then over time eventually list them as a larger company. And the uh, what they call the sort of growth equity companies that were investing in the unlisted, unprofitable tech companies in the boom of the previous few years. Because the three main drivers of the values, if you like, in the private equity space are The underlying profitability of the company, which is partly how well the company is doing now, partly the choice of the manager, how good they are at picking companies, the rating you apply to that, and the financing risk, because private equity tends to use quite a lot of borrowing. And on the mainstream trusts, uh, profitability has held up really well over the last. In fact, most most profit most companies have been growing their profits through the uh, through the bear market of the last year or so, but the ratings come down. So by and large, NAVs have been resilient. And most of them took advantage of the period of low interest rates to lock in um, very, very cheap capital. So in, in the case of the mainstream trusts, I think that the people are way too worried about what's going to happen to the next NAV or where NAVs will trough out. I'm much more skeptical about some of the growthy growth companies which invested in companies with a value of a billion that suddenly 18 months later had a value of 15 billion or whatever, because there was a clearly, clearly an environment where free capital meant that valuations had no real anchor to them. And the uncertainty there is if there's no profit, you don't know what rating to apply to something that, you know, to profit in 10 years' time. And there's there, and the, the evaporation of free capital means that people are much more skeptical which companies to back. As you mentioned, the net asset value returns for private equity investment trusts on the whole have proved resilient since rates have been going up over the past 18 months. But the share price performance, it's notably lagged the NAV. You know, discounts have widened quite significantly. Have any other private equity trusts caught your eye and do you have exposure to the sector? Again, I'd sort of go generically that the, the mainstream, I think it's actually like shooting fish in a barrel at the moment for the mainstream private equity trust, because although NAVs have been like, in some cases, they've gone up five or 10%, most of them haven't lost more than a few percent, but discounts have widened between 15 and 20%, which is much more than investment trusts as a whole. So 
and, and, and you, you can do your own research as to you know, look at the track record of the individual manager, where the geographical exposure, what you particularly want. But most of them are really attractively cheap, in my view. I, again, I'm much more uncertain over the sort of the companies which have invested in what they hope is the next NVIDIA or the next Microsoft, because frankly, those things aren't making any money. And, and although they might still have a, an exciting area to operate in, in the absence of free capital, some of them might not be financed long enough to prove it. So some of them might you know, fail where in a pre more forgiving environment they would have succeeded. So um, you know, if you're looking at discounts of you know, 30, 40, really up to about 50% for the mainstream funds, that's, I think if you're prepared to be patient through um, whatever cyclical risk there is over the next year or two, until we can see the top in interest rates, you're likely to see a, a narrower discount and probably share price gains on a one or two year view. I mean, that's obviously caveated and not, as long as we don't have a deep recession. On some of the, the other things where the discounts are 60 or 80%, that's probably telling you quite legitimately that nobody has a clue what, what a company that's been devalued from 50 billion to 8 billion is actually worth today. So which private equity trust does Witten have exposure to? We, we, we have holdings in three, which are uh, Princess Private Equity, which we've held for about 10 or 11 years uh, through sort of thick and thin. It's a, it used to be a fund of funds and is now managed by the Partners Group in Switzerland. It's had the odd hiccup over the last year. They, they cut their dividend, now they've reinstated it. But, so you, you have to accept that even if you find a good company, they will occasionally, you know, like a, you know, a, a Jack Russell Terrier, they'll occasionally bite you in the ankle. Uh, the other one that we've got, our largest holding in the sector is uh, Apex Global Alpha. Um, and, and again, that's a slightly more growthy tech-oriented company, similar to HG Capital. And one that we've bought, both of those we've held for quite some time. So we've sort of made money and then kind of seen a haircut over the last year or two, still still in the blue or in the black, if one can put it that way. Um, and then one we bought recently is HV, HV Private Equity, Harbourvest. Again, we, we one, that was one of those which was in a sort of upper 40s discount where we don't know when the economic cycle bottoms out. We don't know how, rates, how high rates are going, but we think there's quite a lot of room for, there's quite a lot of, um, cushion uh, against uh, bad news in that sort of rating. As I say, that, that's our, our research on that particular one. Individuals must do their own research. You also own Syncona, which is a growth capital mm -hmm. investment trust. Is that higher risk than the other private equity trusts that you own? It is in a sort of way because I'd actually characterize it more as a, as a pharmaceutical business which is structured as an investment trust because what they try and do is invest, is to is to find an interesting piece of science with a world-leading academic behind it and then back them in stages, initially with a small amount of money, then a court, you know, provided the results show it, a little bit more money. And what they wanted to do, which they were originally part of the Welcome Group, was to provide a source of capital for the UK to grow companies till the point where they were potentially you know, multi-billion pound um, successful drug companies. Whereas in the past, then, because they specialise mainly in the in the sort of biotech area. In the past, what the UK used to be very good at was develop some really interesting companies, and then as soon as they were worth two hundred million, they got sold to an American, you know, pharmaceutical major. And uh, in intrinsically, it is higher risk because you're looking at um, at scientific uh, ideas, which at some point or other they either will succeed or won't succeed. And in their early life, they only had three or five. 
holdings. So you know, clearly the fortunes, you know, the sentiment towards the company depended upon whether there was news coming in on those. They've now got a broader portfolio. Actually, they've got results coming out in the middle of June. Um, and they've recently announced they've set up an, a, a new company which is involved with preventing uh, macular degeneration in, in the eye. They've had two previous companies in that area. So it's an area where they've got knowledge. This is obviously more of a startup company. And another of their companies has recently uh, announced a deal which is potentially up to $2 billion uh, with AstraZeneca for the development of, of drug candidates. Now, of course, it could be a lot less than that. It's success dependent. So they're, they're very interesting because they're doing something completely different from what you'd get, say, buying Glaxo or, or buying one or two of the investment trusts that invest in the healthcare sector who just go out and buy what they think of are the winners in the market. So moving back to private equity investment trusts, as mentioned, the discounts of balloons mm-hmm. quite a lot over the past year to 18 months. Yeah. So what's the potential catalysts for that to change, for those discounts to come in a bit? Well, I think there are external catalysts and internal catalysts. The external ones are, the, the, the prime doubts are uh, what's going to happen to the economic cycle because that will have an effect on where the stock market goes in the next year or two. And I think we're sort of, we're living through what people ca- categorise as or characterise as, as the recession risk. So far, there hasn't been much of a recession in any of the major economies. But people keep worrying that you know there's a lag. Interest rates have gone up. You know the other shoe will drop soon, and will. You know, and so so there's that sort of there's a quite a lot of bearishness in the stock market, even though the levels of the stock market have held up very well. So the, the bearishness uh, hasn't really um, reflected itself in the prices in the stock market as in aggregate, but it has in the unquoted sector. So it seems to me that there's a sort of schizophrenia there, and and either the stock market is right. To, to be relatively resilient, waiting for better times, or the unquoted sector is right, and then the stock market's due for a fall. My, my betting is that w- in the end, the economy is going to muddle through. And as, as the evidence comes through that the, that the cyclical picture for the economy is bottoming out, and alongside that, the peak in interest rates is, uh, it, it becomes more visible, I think sentiment will turn. And at that point, people will think, well, hang on, NAVs are down, I don't know, su- supposing bad case, they end up down 5 to 20%, but prices are down 30 to 50%. Some of that gap will close, and then you'll get into an upcycle when private equity tends to do quite well. There's been some criticism that the boards of private equity investment trusts are not proactive enough in trying to tackle their wide discounts due to a lack of share buybacks across the entire sector. What's your thoughts on that? Would you welcome a greater amount of share buybacks for the free trust that you own? Yes. Uh, in general, I think buybacks are, are a, a, a mathematically provable way of in, uh, adding value for shareholders. You don't know what it's going to do to the discount, but you know if you're buying back some of your shares at 30 40% discounts and, and, and cancelling them effectively, that's each what time you do that is accretive to the NAV of the remaining shareholders. There is obviously a debate to be held by a board because they also have to manage the liquidity cycle. That's the one thing you don't want to find is going through a downturn. You've got an illiquid portfolio, some of which might need to have additional follow-on capital. And if you use all your, your cash and borrowing facilities for buybacks, then you can end up actually doing shareholders a disservice. But there are situations where companies have had free cash and have failed to buy back shares or where the boards have failed to send a signal by buying back shares or buying shares for their own account because that's you know people are always looking for signals i think another thing that um 
I, I think people underestimate the effect of is if you were to charge the particularly the basic fee on market cap, not on NAV, that would soon soon uh, align the interests of the investment manager with those of shareholders. Because rather than thinking, oh, we're chugging along, we're adding value to all these companies, they suddenly think, well, hang on, we're taking a 35 40% haircut on our fee at the moment. And that either might encourage them to support the idea of buybacks, or maybe they spend a little bit more money on, on marketing. Um, the other area, which is probably not in the manager or the board's hands, is but in the regulators, is the issue of um, wealth managers selling companies which are otherwise good investments because the cost ratios are too high. Because, for example, property companies and listed private equity tend to have quite high fee ratios. But what really matters, or I think should matter, is what's the return after fees? But, but because wealth managers have to send a letter to their clients every year saying, here are all the fees that we charge and all the underlying fees on the funds that we hold for you. They, they tend to be a bit allergic to holding listed private equity and property. And yet they are some of the biggest pools of capital that could invest in these companies. So I think the two most effective things would be to charge basic fees on market cap, not on NAV, and to uh, to, to try and pressure the regulator to change the rule where investment companies in, are operating in a particular area, whether it be private equity or property, have to disclose all their fees. Whereas if you were an ordinary PLC doing exactly the same thing, you don't. So there's a prejudice against that sort of investment trust being held by wealth managers. And of course, share buybacks, they're no panacea. I think it's fair to say that over the long term, what will hopefully keep a discount quite low is the performance. Over time, I mean, I wouldn't go and automatically go and buy the widest discount in the sector. The point I made earlier on, there are some at 60 or 80% discounts. And I think that that's where there's most doubt over what the NAV really is. Uh, so you want to look at the long-term track record. And there are quite a few of the listed private equity funds on the market have either got 10 or in some cases 20 year track records as quoted London companies, or you can look at their track record as partnerships in, in, in other areas. So I, you know, I, I think the, the discount should be, uh, or the accretion from the discount should be the icing on the cake. But if the cake's moldy, you don't want it. And the exposure that you have to private equity trusts that you've mentioned, it's part of an around 10% allocation that Witten has to specialist collective funds. So which other investment trusts do you own and why? We've got a, two categories. It is the biggest part. Out of the sort of 11% or so that we've got, I, th I think about six is enlisted private equity. We've got a couple of cyclical plays. We, for quite a long time, had a holding in BlackRock World Mining because we felt about sort of nine years ago where there was a collapse in the commodity sector and the oil price, which we felt was overdone. Our, our delegated external fund managers tended not to buy mining or oil stocks. So we thought this, this looks like an opportunity. So we, we bought in, uh, then sort of promptly saw our first investment halve over the subsequent 12 months or so. But I think we bought at £4.50, it went to £1.70. Our in price now is about minus £2 if you take all dividends and sales since, and the price is 7 So So it's turned out to be a very good invest, investment, but you did have to be patient because it's a cyclical industry. Um, and we've got a, one of the UK property companies, Schroeder Real Estate. Um, again, not single, we just happen to hold it. I'm not saying it's the, the best, but that is a very good example where if you were a, a listed REIT, um, like you know, um, 
Seagro uh, or Land Securities doing exactly the same as Schroeder Real Estate, your you don't have to disclose your costs to the wealth. You, you obviously have to disclose them in your accounts, but wealth managers don't have to say land securities cost 2% to manage, whereas they do with this. Anyway, we, we bought it some, some while ago because properties had a rocky ride over the pandemic and subsequently it's, it's been volatile, but we're quite encouraged by the fact it's grown, grown its dividends sequentially for about eight or nine quarters since, uh, since the depth of the pandemic. Uh, both of those are things which we don't need to hold long-term, but where if we think that they're cheap enough, they become attractive to us as investors. But we're, we're very particular about the quality of the, the managers. The other two, Sincona we talked about a little bit earlier on, there's a, a company called uh, VH Global Sustainable Energy, uh, which is, uh, which as you would guess, is <laughs> invests in sustainable energy supplies. And it's, um, they came to the market two or three years ago uh, with the intention, what their plan is not simply to buy uh, mature projects, and if you like, run them for yield, like a lot of the a lot of the sort of special asset classes in the last ten years, you know, corporate loans or different things. What they try and do is quite a lot of their capital is committed to early stage projects, which they can therefore buy more cheaply because there's more operational risk. They then construct them, and so as they construction gets completed, the value rises. And then as they start earning returns as an operating asset, the value rises further. So with the, the attraction for us there is we think that sustainable energy and the electrification of the economy, decarbonization and so forth, is a multi-decade trend. And we, ha we have a, a, a specific climate change fund run by a US manager, which is also a play on that. We, we want our shareholders to be able to benefit from you know, enduring growth, which that trend's going to uh, create and as mentioned earlier, you know, there's investment trust discounts. They're w wider than their historical averages, pretty much across the whole universe. Are there any other sectors of the market that particularly stand out for you at the moment? I think that the two that really stick out because the discounts are very wide are, are property and pri private equity, just because the numbers are very wide. They've widened by more than the average in the sector. But if you look at whether you look at the global generalists. Uh, potentially including Witten, but you know the whole the whole sector has seen a sort of five or ten percent you know widening of discounts. The uh, UK uh, general trusts all widened in the wake of the Brexit vote, and those discounts really haven't disappeared since. There's quite a lot of uh, relatively lowly valued assets out there where. It's not that the discount, as you pointed out earlier on, what matters is the NAV progress and then the discounts are, as, a, as an extra kicker. So you're not going to buy, you know, Joe UK Investment Trust just for a 5% discount narrowing. But if you are going to buy a particular asset class and, you know, in, a, in an environment where you hope that over the next two or three years, we, we look through the recession risk and actually look through a to, towards a period of, of, of more buoyant economic growth, then you might as well buy it a bit cheap. And, and the thing that attracts me is, I mean, none of us really knows exactly where, you know, how persistent inflation is going to be, how high rates have to go. Do the central banks in the end compromise between the, how, how quickly interest, you know, they're not, do, do they keep putting rates up until, in, until inflation is 2% or once the direction is right for inflation, are they prepared to be a bit patient and, and let the economy grow out of some of its problems? The thing that interests me is, is not trying to predict where the cycle on rates or the economy turn because that's you know that's a coin toss. 
but the there are two or three areas of non-discretionary spending over the next four or five years, whether it be decarbonisation of economies, whether infrastructure renewal, uh, and those two obviously overlap. Uh, maybe less positively defence spending, but that's that which are which are going to, which are, if you like are are becoming political imperatives and a way is going to be found to finance them. And I think those are potentially going to be quite big drivers of economic growth. And I, I think too little, too much attention is paid towards the pressure on the consumer and all interest rates going up, mortgage rates and so on, which is undoubtedly there and it has an effect on the economy. But if you've also got these big capital investment cycles coming in and uh, you know, similarly in the US, they're trying to onshore chip production to diversify the Taiwan risk. Um, the I think there's too little attention paid to what are potentially you know multi-trillion dollar ten-year programs of capital investment, and and that's not just good for investment trusts; it's it's good for risk assets as a whole, and and I guess the prosperity of the citizenship. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.